Shalom, everyone. This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. Today's Shabbat message is by my dad, Warren Tanner, entitled Messianic Expectations. Feel free to check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. You will find their blog post by my dad, as well as archived Shabbat messages and links to our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does So I want to start today with reading my blog. I mean, if you want to go to the website, our website, and, or your email, if you get us an email and follow along, that'd be great. The reason I want to do that is I'm going to be speaking out of Acts chapter 2. Um, and I know it's also another opportunity to get my blog up and out somewhere. I uh, found a couple of mistakes this morning as I was reading it out loud, which I don't normally do. Uh, and so fix those. You know, I have a new appreciation for people that try to read stuff, like the people that record the Bible, read the Bible, on, and, and takes, you know, without making a mistake while you're reading, it's incredible. All right, so, <coughs> so uh, I've entitled this week's blog, Save Yourselves from This Untoward Generation. And that's Acts 2.40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. For some reason, I like dictionaries, dictionaries that you can hold in your hand. I've had several over the years. I just picked up one yesterday at the local grocery store where they sell used books for a donation. They had a 1992 Webster's Dictionary. I snatched it up. I decided to see what it said for the word untoward. This is what it says, quote, not yielding readily, refractory, perverse, end quote. What does refractory mean, you ask? I did too. So I looked it up and said dictionary. Quote, not amendable to control, disobedient, unmanageable, obstinate, end quote. That's how Peter summed up his observation about the times in which he lived. He readily came out with what he believed. He didn't try to make it palatable so nobody would feel offended. I have to believe he knew the people's attention would be focused like a laser on him and what his words clearly implied. So what's he saying? What did he mean? How did it all flesh out? Let me tell you what I think. I get to do that since this is my blog. He's saying there's no hope. There will be no national revival brought about by God. God will be taking action and it won't be pleasant. This statement of Peter implies separation. Save yourselves from. With this statement, a line of demarcation has been drawn in the sand. A choice of action must be taken. This statement of Peter implies a personal rather than a national saving. Yourselves is personal, not national. If it were national, Peter wouldn't have had said from. This statement of Peter implies judgment. It's a warning that says something bad is going to be happen, 
happening. And if you have any sense, you'll see the handwriting on the wall and remove yourself temporally and spiritually. Yeshua had already made it clear that things were about to change and weren't going to be getting any better for a long time to come. Matthew 23, 37 through 39, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her children, uh, her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Soon the temple would be destroyed. People would die and others would flee for their lives. The diaspora, of which we are still a part, would begin. I've heard Bible preaching, um, sorry, I've heard Bible believing preachers and talk show hosts express their hopes for a national awakening, revival. The hope is held out that God will turn our nation back to him. Folks, those days are over. Our nation has been for a long time past hope. We can only thumb our noses and give God the finger for so long before enough is enough. We have to forgo the kumbaya, my Lord, hope that since God loves America so much, he won't take it down. I fear we as believers have fallen prey to that false hope. And here's why I think that. Our national heritage and our preaching has taught by implication that America is, in the eyes of God, equally as special to him as his land, Israel. You know, in God we trust. One nation under God. Or God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above, from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, white with foam. God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my home sweet home. As I said before, we are presently living on our nation's past spiritual laurels. Those days in which God totally stood behind America, if in fact he ever did, are gone. Patriotic warm fuzzies are, for me anyway, waning. And that makes me incredibly sad. Abortions, along with the moral decline and decadence of our nation, cry out for God to take action. It's almost as if we're triple dog daring God to do something. Did you read this? So click on that link uh, for the triple dog daring. Perhaps, oh, sorry. Peter was giving the people of his generation a heads up as to what they could expect. They had become untoward. That can't signal anything good. Listeners would have sensed the smoke on the horizon and taken notice that they were being warned. Perhaps this in part is why there was such a response for salvation among the listeners of Peter's sermon. The reason our country experienced revival and reprieve from God in past generations is because of men like Jonathan Edwards who preached hellfire and damnation, not the pathetic stuff that is coming from our evangelical pulpits today. So what are we to do? Stop hoping for God to do anything on a major national level. Yes, God can still do anything he wants except go against the precedent 
he has already established in his word. As individual believers, we need to examine ourselves and let God do what needs to be done in us. Also, we need to be bold like Peter and proclaim the straightforward truth as presented to us by God in his word. That's what Peter did. And look what happened. People realized their need for salvation and came to Yeshua. However, the nation was not spared what Yeshua had already made clear was going to happen. Before long, judgment would fall. And it did. We, perhaps, are in the final period of reprieve for our country. If so, then, we as individual believers in Yeshua need to redeem the time for the days are evil. All right. Now for today, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to talk on uh, what I'm entitling Messianic Expectations. I not going to be interested in navigating the minefields theologically that are in this chapter. I don't want to deal with tongues and I don't want to do with our, do you need to be baptized to be saved? Those are the two theological landmines that are just rife throughout this chapter. And I don't want to focus on any of that today. I want to focus on something else, but I want to read the chapter because I think it's, it's uh, instructive and necessary to give us the full setting. So, just bear with me. Uh, we're going to read the chapter and then we're going to just try to focus on one aspect. All right, here we go. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. 
And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption." Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Messiah to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Messiah, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Yeshua hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Yeshua, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were immersed, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily 
such as should be saved. Now, I, I thought when I finished this up, because I've read this, this is where I am in my reading, I'm in Acts, so I, I spent pretty much the week reading Acts 2 over and over and over, just again, one of those things. But when I come to the end of Acts chapter 2, I, I, I thought, I don't know why, but I thought of it like this. Because this is really good stuff going on here. It, it starts and it ends and, and it's just wonderful. And, and Peter finishes and they're praising God, having favor with all the church. And the Lord added to the church daily, shuts us, should be saved. And I thought, you know what, if this were a movie, on t a movie or a TV show, it would end here and everybody would live happily ever after. It'd be a perfect Hallmark Channel movie because that's how those movies are, you know. They, 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 they boy-girl meets, boy-girl dates, they break up, they do they love one another, they finally get together, they have the wedding, oh, and they go off and everything, they live happily ever after. No! Real life happens after that. You find out you're married to that person you didn't know that you were marrying. And then you have to work through that. Then you start throwing kids into the mix. And, oh, it's wonderful. No, then kids turn into kids. And, and then you're getting older and your body falls apart. And you grow up and your kids hate you and you die. <laughs> oh, You know, my point is life happens. It'd be wonderful if Acts chapter 2 ended that way, and that's the way it went on in Christianity for the next 2,000 years to where we are, but that's not real life. And to me, this is the problem with modern Christianity and the Messianics. We want it sunshine and lollipops all the time, and so we strive to create and live in our Christian TV movie fantasy world. And so you have our Christian churches and everybody's there happy and we're praising Jesus. We have our Messianic movement. Everybody's happy and praising Jesus. And we work so hard to recreate this Kumbaya Acts chapter 2 that we become separated from real life because we constantly want to create that which God never wanted to exist anyway. And so it's all fake. We put on facades. We have messianic this and Christian that. And we put on this show of look how wonderful it is. Come to Jesus. It'll make everything better. Your life will be wonderful. Look at us. We're so happy. Then you go home and you find, you find out, well, their, their marriage sucks. 20 years later, well, they got divorced. 20 years later, look what their kids are marrying, same sex. You know, it's, it's, and why does this happen? I think in part we try to create this fantasy world. That's not what God ever wanted. They wanted to hang out in Jerusalem. They had everything in common. They're selling their goods. Let's hunker down and stay here. But Yeshua had already given the great command, you're to go from here to there, not stay here. And so they had to face real life real quick. That's Acts chapter 2. And there are these moments in ministries and marriages and families where you have kumbaya. And, and what's cool is, if I can get this, um, there, there's, um, it, the chapter starts with verse 1, one accord. 
And it ends in verse 56 in one accord. And I'm jumping around, but I think this is very important. Um, the Blue Letter Bible had a great note um, on this idea of one accord, if I can find it. Yeah, one accord. So, so it starts in one accord. Everybody's together. It ends in one accord, and everybody's together. But as Paul Harvey would say, and we know the rest of the story. We know from Romans to the end, to Revelation. We know what Paul had to deal with with the congregations. The writer of Hebrews said, man, you guys should be grown up, but I'm still having to give you pablum. You get to Revelation, and you have Yeshua and the vision in relation to seven churches, and most of them, except for maybe one, are a disaster. Yes, we should be in one accord. But not so we have feel-good time. One accord in relation to the preaching of the word, doctrinal standards. We're going to preach the truth. We will sink or swim on the message, the pure message of the gospel, whether our ministry grows or doesn't, whether anybody likes us or they all hate us. And as a matter of fact, Yeshua said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. The gate is narrow. You are going to have enemies. It says in our chapter where, where David is talking about, if I can find it, yeah, until, uh, verse 35, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Boggles my mind. God has foes, he has enemies. Why? That's just the way it's going to be. However, within the body of Messiah, there should be unity. But we've been, most of us in Christian churches and in the Messianic movement to know about, it's, it's just a disunified movement. So what we have to try to do in our own personal life, be unified with God. In our family life, be unified with God and one another in the family. And then bring that into our fellowships. And decide once and for all that doctrinal truth is what we die for. And we will preach it. And we will be like Jonathan Edwards, who preaches a sermon in New England, the hands of sinners in the hands of an angry God. He read it. Not as excited as I am, evidently. And people feared that they were dropping off into hell. And he talked about they being dangled over the pits of hell by a spider's web or something like that. It's been a long time since I read it. I read it, it's like, this brought revival? Yes, it brought revival to this area. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Today, there's nobody's a sinner and God loves everybody and he's not mad at anybody. See, this is where we are. And this is why New England is a disaster. Vermont and Rhode Island, I think, are just uh, voted upon or putting it into a vote that where you can full-term abortion all the way through for any reason. And some are thinking about uh, death afterwards. <laughs> what would Jonathan Edwards think? New England is so stinking liberal now, it's Bad. I'm way off on everything. Anyway, one accord. So there's this note in the Blue Letter Bible uh, as it talks about it. It says, one accord. A unique Greek word used 11 of its 12 times uh, in the New Testament in the book of Acts. So this word's used 12 times. They said 10 out of 12, but I, I counted 11. So this is a unique word used 11 of its 12 New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts. So 11 times is in Acts, one time 
somewhere else in it, I forget now, maybe Romans. All right, so the use of this word helps us understand the uniqueness of Christian community. This Greek word is a compound of two words meaning to rush along and in unison. So to rush along in unison. The, this is what I thought was good. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. As the instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church. That's, I love that. You know, if you're into music, and I am, and, you know, like, and I've listened to tons of Mozart as of late and, and read books about him, and I wish I could read music and hear the notes in my head like these people can, but these notes are put together in such a way, it's, it's a harmonious effect. And, and when, when uh, performing and put together under the direction of a, a, a master um, uh, concert master, guy up there with the baton, conductor, you know, it all comes out beautiful. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in Acts chapter 2, beginning to end, one accord. That's what Yeshua wants. He knew well, Yeshua full well knew that it was going to not be of one accord. But that's what we're supposed to strive for, and it won't be. Our fellowships, Christianity, the diversiveness, diversion, I didn't mean to say device, but the diversity of us all, it just, it, 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 it should cause a hearkening within us for even so come Yeshua where everything will be kumbaya for real. All right, so anyway, I, I found that a fascinating that this chapter is wrapped in this thing of one accord. But don't end there because there's a battle to be fought. Truth is going to be assaulted. You're going to... Uh, be chastised and there will be persecution and you are going to at times doubt your faith maybe almost reject your faith reject Yeshua I don't know that man it's going to get very real for all of us and we're going to be facing it in America as believers now okay so um, let me give my outline which is like I usually say is not set in stone it's just mine to kind of get the whole chapter together. So I have, first off, the miracle, verses 1 through 13. The message, verses 14 through 36. The meaning, verses 37 through 40. And then the melding, M-E-L-D-I-N-G, the melding, verses 41 through 46. That's the idea of one accord or singleness of heart or all things common. So the miracle 1 through 13, the message 14 through 36, the meaning 37 through 40, the melding 41 through 46. Now, let's see, I'll try to stick with my outline, which I'm already over. So I read my blog, let's see. Mm -hmm. I gave you the outline, did the intro. Okay, I did the one a quarter already. So we're already on four and five. See how quick that was? Now, Messianic expectations. I never saw this like this until this time. But that's our verse, uh, which I didn't write it down. 
Uh, where was it? Why didn't I write down that? Oh, uh, verse 5. It says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now that just caught my attention. Normally I think of it this way, and have thought of it this way, and it is okay to think of it this way, is you had a bunch of people that are here for this uh, specific holiday because they were supposed to be here. And then after it was over, they were going to go away and go back home. And I'm, I'm sure that is correct. I'm going to read a little bit about this. But I, 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 I tend to see, and we've talked about this in the past, there was this buzz in the air. People were looking for the Messiah to come. Something was happening. There was an expectancy. They were looking for it. And I think, in addition to, or maybe even more so, the people have made pilgrimage already and were already living and had taken up abode, not just temporarily, but had come and relocated to the land because there was an awareness, something was in the air that ah, they were looking for Messiah to come. And so, yes, there were people coming because of the festival, but greater than that, people were returning to the land, settling there, because they were, had this thing that had an anticipation of the Messiah to come. And there's a, maybe a couple of reasons for that. But I hearken that, liken that to what is happening today. I really believe since, I mean, I have been saved since 73, I keep 46 years. There has never been, as I see it anyway, in the horizon of my landscape, looking over Christianity and messing the movement, I have never seen this, this expectancy that we are in the end of the end times. Israel is a nation. There's this flocking happening of God's people going there, focused upon, and even moving there. There's been this influx from around the world of people going back to the land. You have the Temple Institute, which I'm not in favor of, but getting things ready for the temple. There, there's, there seems to be this expectancy, and I'm excited about this. I think this is what's going on in Acts chapter 2, and I want to try to prove that, at least in part. I believe this is what's going on in Acts chapter 2, and I want us to be encouraged by this. I really think, i got to be careful, I've never been a prophecy nut, so don't hang your hat on this, I'm not setting dates, but I believe that things are winding down. Not, around the world in our country, how much worse can it get? So I read my blog. You can only spit in God's face and thumb your nose at him and give him the finger long enough, especially in a country such as America, and not expect God to bring judgment when you're killing tons of people and you're morally decadent 
you know, it's, it's, so, but, but, okay. But it was bad when Yeshua came. It was bad when he came. And I think the badness helps to create an overarching awareness within the people of God that something is in the air. And I honestly, from my perspective, believe God is preparing the hearts of his people to return to the Torah, to make a bride pure for him for his return. It has to happen. Now, a couple notes on this expectancy that the people had at that time. First off, and I'm not going to read all of this, but it appears, and just you do your own research on this, but it appears that there were some very specifics that people would look for to conclude that that guy is the Messiah that we're looking for. And it seems to be there were at least four things. First, that the Messiah would raise a man who had been dead at least four days. Now I'm going to read this part. I don't know if this is true, but it's, I've read it and heard it. So Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus, Yeshua, purposely waited. He knew what the Jewish people believed, that the body could rise from the dead after three days maximum. I find that interesting. The Jews, for whatever reason, believed, maybe not all of them, that, okay, a dead body, up to three days could come back to life. After three, no. And that's why some think Yeshua uh, waited for four days that um, if the Messiah would raise one from the dead, then it must be a man who has been dead for four days. Lazarus was dead four days. Yeshua raises him. And that's why the people, he's the Messiah. That's not what we were expecting. Uh Uh-oh, man, but he raised somebody who's been dead four days. Number two, heal a man born blind. Um. The chief priests and Pharisees believed that a person born with a defect could never be healed because it was due to sin, the sins of the parents. I talked about that not too long ago. Uh, Yeshua, he heals this, a man that was born blind and then leaves a scene and so forth. So anyway, that's number two. So raise a man dead for four days. Dead for, for four days. Heal a man born blind. Heal, heal a leper. No one, as far as I can tell, is, is it ever, was it ever documented, no one of Israel had ever been healed of leprosy. The only healing came to Naaman, a Gentile who dipped in the Jordan River seven times. The law had healing of leprosy built into Leviticus 14, but no Levi priest had ever healed anyone in Israel of leprosy according to Leviticus 14. That is why after Yeshua healed the man of leprosy, he told him, don't tell him anyway, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yeshua showed them what the law, well, no, this is Christian. Anyway, so, so, but anyway, healing somebody of leprosy. And that's why he said, you go tell these guys, look, you, you show them, you're a leper, I cleansed you. Never happened, only the Messiah could do that. And the fourth one, this is interesting, cast a demon from a man who is deaf and dumb. Um, the Pharisees had the practice of casting out a, a demon, 
and they required that the name of the demon be named before the demon could leave. A deaf and dumb man could not tell you the name of the demon, so only the Messiah could cast him out. That's interesting. Now, if any of that is accurate as far as what swirls, swirls around these four things, I find it interesting. And so there's this expectancy in the air. Yeshua raises Lazarus. He heals a man born blind. He heals a leper. And he casts out a demon from a guy who's deaf and dumb and can't name the demon. <laughs> you know, and you do read it. What's your name? Legion. You know, for we are many. You know, there's a name. I find it interesting. But now you have a guy who's deaf and dumb. <laughs> you know, maybe because sign language. I don't know. Somebody speaking on his behalf. But it had, they believe it had to be named. So anyway, I find that interesting that um, uh, part of the Messianic expectation deals with this aspect of things that Yeshua did. Now, as far as the expectancy in the air, uh, a note from John Gill referring to uh, uh, Dr. Lightfoot. Lightfoot thinks that the people came in great numbers from all parts in expectation of the Messiah and his kingdom. And this is interesting. The time being up according to Daniel's weeks and other prophecies that he should appear. Now, I've studied into this. I'm not smart enough to even talk about this, but they somehow figured out the timeline and Daniel's weeks were done and they were looking for the Messiah to come. And, and, and Lightfoot's not the only one to say that. Now, Matthew Poole has a note talking about why so many people could have been there. But then at the end, he makes a statement in relation to uh, uh, the prophecies being fulfilled. So Poole says, not referring unto all these people that came, not only constant inhabitants, but such as had an occasion their lodgings there. So in other words, it's talking about those that lived there, but others who were probably more of the wealthy Jews were able to have like, we'll call it summer cottages, you know, summer homes in Israel, you know, places they could go for the festivals. So they come and they lodge there. So not only constant inhabitants, but such as had an occasion, their lodgings there, partly out of a constant respect, which both Jews and proselytes had for the place. And this is why others were coming for the temple and their worship's sake, it being also a place for learning and education, Jerusalem, as appears by the colleges and synagogues mentioned in Acts 9. But especially now, the concourse from all parts must needs have been very great, it being one of those times in which all the males were to appear before God, to which might be added, here it is, the great expectation they had of the Messiah made them to admit, omit no occasion of inquiring concerning him. The prophecies concerning the time of his coming being fulfilled and they could not be ignorant of the many and great things concerning the true Messiah. All that to say by Lightfoot and Poole, that there was this expectancy and people were wanted to be there because the prophecies, the prophetic calendar seemed to be coming to this fulfillment. And so you have this idea of this word devout. It says that devout, there were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation under heaven. I take it not just those that were always living there, not just those that had the summer cottage so they could spend some time there, but people were coming in mass and settling there like is happening now of God's people going back to the land because these people knew the prophecies were being fulfilled. We are living in times in which prophecies are being fulfilled. 
Israel is a nation. All these people are going back to the land. It's looking like uh, Jeremiah is going to, the prophecy is going to be fulfilled and the two branches come, be, coming to be one. And it says this idea of devout. Now, <clears throat> I, I find it interesting. Go to Luke chapter 2. You might not have thought of it this way before when you read chapter 2. But it talks about this guy, Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Devout. It's the same word that is used in Acts 2, for these devout people, in verse 5, they were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Perhaps Simeon and Luke was one of these devout guys. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Ghost is upon him. It had been revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. So he's not going to die before he sees the Lord's Messiah. This guy's expecting the Messiah to show up, just like these people in Acts chapter 2. There's this messianic expectancy in the air. So, that's pretty much it. All of that to just say that little bit. I am encouraged because you see in Luke's two, uh, Luke 2 and in Acts 2, this expectancy. Things were bad at that time when Yeshua came, really bad. People were losing hope, spiritual corruption. The Torah had been so twisted and distorted that nobody could recognize it anymore. And they had this fake oral Torah man's traditions and Yeshua comes to set the record straight and return the Torah back to its rightful position and place. That was his mission to fulfill that. It's happening now. The Torah is being restored to its rightful place among God's people. There's an expectancy amongst God's people that, gosh, Yeshua is going to be coming, Jesus is going to be coming. But the times are bad. And it's just being dumped on us from everywhere around the world. And when it's as dark as it is, that's the best time for light to shine. So what do we need? We need to be devout. <laughs> devout. Devout. Focused on the things of God. <sighs> Letting work, God work on us. And, and gosh, you know, <sighs> I think God's people are dark. We put on a great facade. And I believe as Yeshua is coming and the light shines on the darkness like it's going to happen in the world, he's shining the light in our lives to reveal to us the darkness that is in us, the sin that is in us. And, and it's almost like you don't see the dark. This happens all the time to me. You turn on that flashlight and say, whoa, I didn't know that was there. Well, we've been living with that there. It's not been noticeable, but all of a sudden, click, you turn the light on. It's like, oh, tiny dust. Look at that. Well, look at those dead bugs in the corner. Oh, I didn't know those were there. Those spiders in the garage. 
they're dead. <laughs> well, that's what's happening now. And I believe, oh, listen, remember when, when Yeshua, uh, Satan was tempting Yeshua and he said, I'll give you the kingdoms, and he shows it to him the mo uh, in a moment in time, and he says, all this is yours, Yeshua turned it down. Well, I got thinking about this this week. Well, what did Yeshua did? Uh, what did Satan do? He said, all right, you don't want it? I'm going to go over here. There's two seeds. Uh, Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's the bad seed, right? Those, and that's what's happening over there now, right? Am I right? Okay. He's, so Satan says, all right, you don't want it? I'm going to give it to the other seed. And that's what's been happening. Since that moment in time, Satan has been given the kingdom over to the other seed. Can you not see that happening now? The world, the kingdoms, it's all culminating now. They are in the domain and the power of the other seed to where the pit has been opened, the locusts have come out, and they have spread around the world, and they are ruling now. The powers of the air, but it's on the earth, and we are fighting for our religious life like we never have before. His seed is out amongst the world like never before, and the light of God's people is dim, so dim. But we're starting to see it now. We're starting to see it. And we're starting to not only... That's why Peter says it's time that judgment must begin with the house of God. We've been so busy pointing the fingers at the world, we've lived with our dead spiders and bugs and dust in our own private life so long, God's not going to put up with that. And I, I know in my own life, it's like he's shining and Satan is working so hard to conquer me and God is working so hard to show the death inside of me. There's this battle going on and, and I know what's going on in your lives. It's just like in the Exodus. Satan was, as Lester was saying, Satan was making his highest bid for the children. Everybody else go, I want the children. Satan is making his highest end-time bid before the exodus to claim more. He's pulling out all the stops. And what has to happen is we allow God to make us a devout Simeon, full of the Holy Ghost, waiting for the consolation of Israel. God speaking to us, the time is coming. Look for it. That, to me, is the message, and it gets so muddied by tongues, and do you need to be baptized before you get saved or not? Satan is so smart. Don't look behind that curtain over there. And so there's been a diversionary tactic in Acts chapter 2, and I think even more so as the end comes, because devout man is what God needs to be focused on Messiah to come. But don't look over there. Focus on all this other crap. And it just makes me mad at myself that it takes so long for me to see what's going on in verse 5. 
So anyway, that's it. Messianic expectations. Let God work in your own dark, darkened heart. You know, go to where you know you live and nobody else knows you live in here and in your mind and in your heart. Come clean with God. I'm warning you, all hell's going to break loose. All hell will break loose because Satan will know he's losing you and he doesn't want to lose us to more light. So he's going to keep us in our own personal darkness. But Simeon was clean, devout. And that's what God needs from us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, God, I've been beat to death myself. I mean, it's just been disastrous. But this is a good thing. Because this is how you clean house. You clean up your people. You prepare a bride. I mean, if you have to prepare a bride, that means a bride's not quite ready. And I do believe, Father, and I'm not setting dates, and I'm not even going to say when, but God, I don't know, this is so unusual for me to be this prophetically aware-minded, expectant, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I've never gone here, but I can't fight it anymore. It seems there's stirrings going on. And it seems like all the world around us is kind of pointing towards something's got to give sometime. Your creation can only thumb its nose and give you the finger for so long. And God, I mean, it is bad. Yeah, it's been bad in the past, but this is bad, this stuff that's going on now with abortion and the moral decadency around the world and the denial of you as God and the creator of life. And, and the one that sets the rules and the laws. God. So, help us to want to be our own individual Simeons, devout. In Yeshua's name, amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah.